I guess uh, we should start off by talking about the uh, the the, the uh, Melody Makers record. Yeah, we can do that for ten and, minutes. Uh, That's probably enough. You know, no. <laughs> <laughs> when did you? Well, you know, I I think there's something interesting about it, just in terms of you as a musician, uh, or at least what what uh, what what people have seen of you as a musician in recent times, which is. Um, uh, the way that the use of the guitar is in the band, which I don't think is that commonly seen in uh, in things that are uh, you know Southwest Louisiana related. Right. Yeah. That's this is true. This is true. Um, so I want to talk to you about the approach and where it came from and how it integrated with those guys. You know, or young Cajun guys. Well, you know when. Uh, when Louis asked me to come and sit in, I called Sonny Chirac and said, Sonny, what should I do? Said, uh, so you did that at a seance? Yeah. I'm just <laughs> Now, this no. can't be. Because you know what? When Sonny Chirac started doing that, he was playing through a, through a Marshall twin stack, which he loved at the end of his life. And I know you're not doing that. so what No, no. No, it's just, you know, um, I don't know how to play the other way. Now, I've learned... I've watched David Doucet. There's a couple other people around here that play guitar, and they play the Cajun Canon really well, some finger-picking, some flat-picking. And I can, you know, kind of do it, but it's like, you know, why? Why when you've got this din going on around you? It doesn't really matter. So I just figured, you know, I listened to what Louie was doing and just kind of went along with that. So Louie really set the stage for this, um, you know, and I had, uh, I, I go for a long time playing with no effects, and then I'll go back and play some, but with them, it, it just seemed like the weirder, I could just set the delays however I wanted, and it didn't bother Kirkland or Brian one bit, mm -hmm. that there mm -hmm. were all kind of subdivisions flying all around. And so that really uh -huh. was fun. So I guess in essence it came out because Louis never doesn't play the same thing. He doesn't play the same form twice. I mean, the form is pretty much the same, but I mean, he might play one song for 10 minutes one night and, and 45 seconds the next night. So, uh, and there's hardly any solos. So to me it was like just the way the band sounded really cool was to be, you know, textural in a sense of, um, you know, like droning, uh, but staying within the harmony, you know. So there was always something. There's always, it is consonant, but stretched, I don't know. Can you stretch out consonants? I guess you can. Uh, yeah, so it's, so it, you know, I, I try to look at it that way, like I was making a big sound field that went along with the tunes seemed like a reasonable thing to do well it seems like louis approach by the time you the, the melody maker starts is already pretty um uh, aggressively not a traditional statement i mean or a, a, a super traditional statement but he's not playing as though it's supposed to be acoustic you know an acoustic delivery of what's going on anyway he's also playing through a whole lot of delay and stuff it seems like so well delay and and a, and a tape machine that does a certain kind of distortion um <clears throat> that you can't get out of a pedal or something it's just like a one one of a kind weird thing 
when that thing dies, it won't sound the same anymore, you know? Yeah, that was, I thought it was extraordinary that you were bringing that out on, on, on the gig. I bet uh, so many, especially the generation that you're playing to there, had never seen anything like that set up with a guitar over the top of it. Um, so, you know, I, it's just that Louis plays, you know, he just doesn't play the same thing twice. And the forms that we're using, it's not the modern Cajun music. It's not the, the post-Lawrence Walker, Belton, Richard kind of Cajun music. It was more straight up. There weren't, you know, there weren't 18-bar forms like, <laughs> like the, a lot of stuff that we play. I mean, it's, you have to listen constantly because you don't really know. And Louis might go back. Uh, where to the, do you think that's come from? Louis might go back to the original form, and um, and and add those extra bars. And sometimes uh -huh. he does. You know, so that's the good part. I mean, the thing is, when you're engaged, every time, and you know, you've been in bands for years. You know how it is when things things can go into like group one mind, or things can go into autopilot. And when things go into autopilot mm -hmm. and you're regurgitating parts and playing the same shit you always played, that's when bands die. Or maybe become very popular. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, how, so let's talk about the reception uh, the reception of the band, both within, uh, within the world that it comes out of and, uh, and, and outside of that, of the ideas. What, what about it? Well, how's it being received? I mean, how do you perceive that it's being received by people inside of the culture and outside? Uh, well, inside the culture, it's fine. It's you know, there's a there's a niche of things. See, the the whole the what the culture as I saw it going back when I first engaged this whole thing like 40 years ago, it's very very different. That is, there were no stars and the especially if you went to the Zydeco side, the black side, the dancers, the cookout side, the bartender, the band, they were all equal. And nobody clapped at the end of songs. They might clap for the dancers, you know. And, it, and they were the same. They saw, you know, they all worked. They all had jobs, and they'd get together on the weekends and do these gigs. And then when it started touring and becoming professional and people becoming stars, it became very different. So I think in this case, by the time Louie came along, the whole thing, there'd been a bunch of bands like Mamu and the Blue Runners and stuff that had started jacked up Cajun music. And there was, oh, I think Michael Duce had one called Koto that was really cool, I think, that Bruce McDonald was in. And uh, so this is like, it's nothing new to take a, a form and rev it up. But in this case, Louie just went way back. And I'd say... From what I can tell, well, we were working a lot, and people liked it. So, and every place we'd play, I don't think I think though, yeah, I can't think of any times when it was like playing for the an industry crowd where people just sat there with their arms folded and looked at us. Oh no, the only bad gig we ever had was the pre-Sonus Christmas party, and that wasn't that bad. Huh. But they all were looking at us like, you know, there was a hundred guitar players in the room, and they're all like, wow. We're better than them. My band's better than this. You know, that, it was that kind of vibe. <laughs> you know, how you, you, you've been on yeah. those gigs like where it's like, oh, my God, and nobody's sure. having any fun. And then the head of um, PreSonus or one of the founders got up, and he played, and he played my guitar, and he was great. I don't know the guy's name, but he, 
he totally kicked ass. So that like saved the evening for me because it, you know, it made me think, okay, this started with music at least, you know? <laughs> so you, you're, uh, you're frequently, uh, you know, I mean, your other, your other hat, one of your other hats is a producer and composer. Uh, let's see, how much is that governing the way that you, because, well, I mean, you know, I've known you over the years and, you know, and there's been a few bands that you've, you know, you've ended up participating in on a playing level, like um, the Morning 40 Federation. And, and uh, you know, I know from your involvement in the Klezmer All-Stars, there's a certain way that you take young musicians or get them into certain ideas. Um, how, how much of that kind of expansive thinking were you thinking about when you were coming in to just be a guitar player again? Well, I didn't even think with this because Louie just called me one day to sit in at a place about 10 miles away, and I was working on something. Mm -hmm. So I just packed up, I packed my guitar and no pedals, and I went out there, and I think they had like a, they had a deluxe reverb or something on there. It was something that had tremolo. So I just went there, and I got the guitar sounding cool and started playing with them. And that was it. And it sounded great. And then he started calling me for the gig. So there was no preconceived anything. It just like was an instant like, oh, okay, this works. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, is there a, so it's a live record. You got a live record and a studio record. Is this a, what are the legs on this? Where's this going from here? Is, is this I Well, who knows? I mean, you know. If uh, if you go play a Live Nation venue, you have to now give them half of your streaming money. You know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who knows where where anything's going right now with like you know performing? I mean, uh, you know, I'm gonna there's I can do some recording sessions pretty soon, I think, because people are getting serious about you know being safe and not behaving like idiots, but. Um, as far as playing goes, I don't think we have any idea. I think everybody in, in the band, we're just everybody's just trying to find things to do every day. And Louis taking a a boat and turning it into an apartment. He's there's a barn on his property that is being turned into a studio. I went over there yesterday and brought some junk. Uh, and there's people working on that, like from afar, an architect and this. So there, things are moving as they were, except we're not going out, not playing twice a week, you know? Uh-huh. And, and we don't uh -huh. see each other, and I don't see anyone, so. I see the, the people I see are the ladies at the back of Walmart that put my groceries into the back of my car. <laughs> right. That's my How social you, life. Uh, let's see. So, so when the melody makers started, when about about how many years ago was that? I don't, I don't know. I think they started playing maybe three, four years ago, but and maybe played five or six gigs, and it wasn't like a big deal. It was just, and then it, it you know, finally, I think the melody makers turned into the inexpensive subset when uh, the people couldn't get the Ramblers, they can get the melody makers for like you know a third of the money or something. So. I think, you know, that that's how, you know, plays into things because the Ramblers, I, I see. Ramblers have a, a niche out there that and, and draw people. Melody makers draw people most of the time. We had one bad gig in New Orleans 
uh, that was during it. It was a jazz fest, you know, at night. And and other than that, uh, I think most every gig we've ever played was well attended, which is that's saying a, something. That's really good. Is it? But it's a, it's a pretty different um, sound, I think, from the from the from the Ramblers, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's very different than the Ramblers, even though. It's odd if Johnny from the Ramblers came and played instead of me, and he's played with us a few times, so we had like pedal steel and me, and then all it did was get even more uh, twisted, this uh, expanded uh, consonants or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and so because this music that we're playing is very different than what the Ramblers play, although maybe the average person couldn't tell that what we're doing is largely... 30 years older than most of the, you know, than the modern Cajun music sound, you know. So you, uh, um, as far, you, you mentioned that, you know, when you started hearing this, getting into this music for 40 years ago, uh, now that's a long time to be contemplating it. And you, but, um, then you moved out to West Louisiana where you have your studio now. And I'm wondering what, uh, what, has anything changed in your understanding of it from being that close to there now and from, from dealing no, with people? No, because I think, you know, most of the bands I like around here that I've heard have nothing to do with Cajun music. And the Cajun most of the Cajun music that I've heard are, you know, knuckleheads going up and leading the crowd in God Bless America and then playing like, <laughs> Eagles, Eagles songs in the middle. You know, it's just like I don't know what it is anymore. It, and and it used to be right. this friendly, open. You know, you could say you could be a Cajun by birth or a Cajun by the back door. And now that back door is closed. And people are. I mean, literally, I've got neighbors that have never. They've looked at me. I've talked to them three times in six years, but they don't want to know nothing. Where are you from? Who do you know? What's your last name? What high school did you go to? I mean, it's just that. It's that simple in a lot of respects and so i mean i'm not going to force myself on these people but uh, the younger uh -huh. band like the amazing nuns man i love that band you know and uh and then you know I, I had a lot of people around here from around here they're in new orleans now but uh so i really to me you know when, see i first heard i heard clifton in the 70s and i thought that was zydeco i didn't realize he was like ray charles compared to everyone else and, yeah, <laughs> and and you know, and then and then when I heard the other people, I wasn't really disappointed. I just realized, oh, it's a different thing. And Clifton had a whole nother thing. And then I started to understand the music from as it went from Houston all the way to Baton Rouge on the 190. There were all these roadhouses, and how Zydeco moved that way. And those roadhouses also had you know Annie Laurie and Paul Gaten and Ike and Tina Turner and all those kind of touring bands that would play all these same joints as the Zydeco people. And so Joe Sample started out as a Zydeco guy. Little Joe. Oh, yeah. Little, little Zydeco Joe. When he was 13. He was wow. busting it up and down Highway 190 on the weekends. And so, you know, I, the music, you know, always, it, it interested in me. But then, like out here, it's just like, the people like there's all these it's again it's this weird royalty thing everyone there's certain people that are royalty and they and then there's certain and then a lot of people don't 
get noticed. And I think Misho, the Misho family is, they play had the same gig on a Monday night for the last, I think it's 30 some years. And, and they don't never get, they didn't get in the festivals. They don't get on the thing and they're not part of the, so Louie was the next generation of that. And, and even then the Mishos are not, you know, it's like maybe they're too smart, you know. You know how America, <laughs> half of America now hates, yeah. they hate smart people, they hate education, they hate science, they hate, you know, I can go on, you know, but we know this. Yeah. But so I'm now, that's right. that's what this area is now. It's a hotbed of, and of people that, you know, don't want to do this and don't want to do that, to which I say, uh, do you going to stop stopping at stop signs? You're going to stop running. You're going to start running all the red lights. Where do we stop? You know, where do we? Uh, where do our freedoms? You know, where are the? Where does the commons <laughs> begin? And, and our freedoms? At, you know. So I, but I can't have these. It's like, I, and a lot of my friends out here that were like that, they're now masking up, and somebody in their family might have gotten sick, or somebody close. So now it's not. They're like, okay. Okay, I get it. But really, it's been months and months before anyone went, okay, I get it. And I'd say the music, uh -huh. the, the music has, you know, ended up, you know, there at the same way. I mean, uh, you know, what, yeah, what if we, we still have the same great people around do it that can play great. And we still have, you know, Dickie Landry and, CC and Roddy Romero and Michael Doucet and all those kind. I mean, there's all this great stuff that people do. And Bruce McDonald, Bruce McDonald had a band for a while. I can't remember their name, but nobody went to see them. A bunch of old guys playing, you know, Radiohead tunes, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I really don't know what Cajun music is anymore, or Cajun culture for that matter. If it's uh -huh. if uh -huh. it's people eating crawfish, you know, it's I just don't, I literally don't know. And I know that Louie and Ashley keep up this, they teach their kids French. There's a lot of people that are staying, trying to keep it all going. And, you know, Ashley made a great book, uh, you know, largely about that half the songs in the Cajun canon are about bad women. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah, because... I, what are we going to blame? Oil? We're going to bl go back to what? How are we going to? The whole scene. Yeah, I, think, I mean, there's there's like so many. You it's got a like, lot of angles. What happened to <laughs> what happened to America? What happened to Cajun music? What happened to Acadiana? What you know? Why is Lafayette once a bastion of Democrat voting now like the reddest place? I mean, it's nuts. You know, it's like fucking Alabama. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I guess I can say it. Yeah. This is not a. Um, so again, the music. Damn if I know. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a strange time, but it's uh, you know. Now, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, certainly in my associations with you, and way before that, you've done. Um, uh, you've been involved with tons of uh, both. Uh, whatever you call it, folk music nouveau, and and also what is really the a broad line of American regional folk music, or it's, if folk music is a real term, and uh, but you've been involved with that for a very 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 long time in all different forms. And I, one of the interesting things to me about Louis's uh, songs with the Melody Makers is a lot of them are 
really loaded with strains of those melodies that you hear from all over different kinds of uh, different kinds of folk music. They're manipulated like that, or, or they're 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 drawn in that way, or there's songs made out of out of those fragments. And so I'm wondering, you know, in a way, I mean, how much is it just that to you, and how much is it specifically Cajun? You know, I mean, I I wonder because I hear those things, and I know you have a great knowledge of that. So, you know, it's interesting to me listen to it. I think we, you know. There's songs that Louis, you know, Uncle Tommy has brought in from other parts, and I, there's definitely geared toward French songs. Uh, it could be yeah, French songs from French. Senegal. It could be French songs, you know, could be French songs, yeah, from anywhere basically. But uh, yeah, oh, those mel melodies, you know, there's. It's not like there's a universal thing, but you know. Watch a Japanese movie every day from like say anywhere from the 40s late 40s kurosawa into the 80s and and the scoring and you know you'll hear every melody ever in, in japanese film music <laughs> is one of the greatest untapped you know uh genres i mean it's just so vast and so remarkable yeah and and you know quentin tarantino kind of you know skimmed and made it, and even, and so what he did, even just skimming a few things, was made was amazing. But so I just feel like it's all, it's all floating around out there. All that, all those melodies, and um, you know, I was thinking how I was just, I've been doing working with Stamfell on these notes for the hundred songs, and we came across, uh, you know, Cole Porter talking about how he, you know, wrote melodies. And he goes, I just write, I write those Jewish melodies. And we went further into it and found there was, there was this whole other thing. And there was a, a subgenre of vaudeville called Jew face. Did you know this? Oh, yes. I'm yeah, see, I didn't know. I, this, is, this is only a week old to me, so I was fascinating. I, got it, I sent it to Benjamin. I was like, you know about this shit? You know? And so uh, I haven't gone so far as to order the... Jew face anthology from Amazon, but <laughs> oh, I'll send it to you. I, I got it. Oh, you so have it. Oh, okay. And, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw it the first time I saw it. I was like, I gotta have that. It looked like it looked like somebody had tried to hide it away in Amoeba Records in L.A. So that you know, in case. Yeah, it, it, and the, the subtitle was perhaps the most offensive record ever, and I was like, oh yeah, oh I gotta, yeah, I gotta hear that. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, uh, with, it, with it, the record co record cover to boot. Yeah, but, there you go. Okay, so I, this goes back to those to melodies that are kind of uh, you know what do you call it Islamic tinged Sephardic. So I don't know. I don't know the right you know words for it on the folkloric or musicology thing. But you know, I'm talking about like the difference yeah. between American blues and music in Cuba depending on where the yeah. people came from when they were drugged over from Africa. And, and there's that. And just like the folk songs, you know, the Polish immigrants, the German immigrants, the Russian, you know, all that shit. And that yeah. all melts in. And, and so Cajun music being, you know, same thing. It's been going on sure. forever. And it just took I a mean, long it's time. Go ahead. And, you know, there, he well, had, there's an interesting irony. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I find it an interesting irony, not an irony like like uh, like I caught you kind of irony way of saying it, but there is an interesting kind of um, circular 
irony in as much as I think one of the ways that, that it's perceived, uh, you know, once you have something like the title of Cajun music or doing French Cajun music, like that Louis is theoretically associated with, and then you're doing stuff that has to do with rock, like it produces these records, it is curious to me, it's as though that was put on top, but like he's putting that together with Cajun music, and really, there's a case to be made that really basically you would have no rock and roll or rock music without these kinds of things in the, the basis they form the basis of it and so it's just a very i find it ironic that it, that it's even looked at that way as that kind of pastiche when it's not really it's there uh, you know it, it, it to a certain extent you have no rock and roll without these kinds of forms of music sitting underneath it you know they're the idea base for it well i get it i mean well you know see the original early cajun music was really aggressive and punky I see what we're yeah. doing. It's like if we're like, we're like an electronic version of Gurner Ray and Glover, you know, who, <laughs> you know, who are who are jacking up, who are trying to do their best, you know, Lead Belly and <laughs> twenty other people imitations, and then they eventually came into their own, most of them, and uh, and but early on. So, but we we just realize we're not trying to sound like the people in 1928 we're just using their forms and using their material and playing it the way we play and that's yeah. that's what's yeah, interesting exactly. yeah, we're yeah. not th th we this is the most uncalculated band i've ever seen you know i've ever been involved yeah. in because really nobody uh -huh. i mean you know when brian picks up and starts doing these pads sometimes I, gee that's cool i had no idea i never heard that before at this part of the song well, okay <laughs> Let's, uh, that's, that's a fascinating, let's, let's look at this, um, let's move on to, uh, the, uh, the, the, the almost released and the, the release that's been going on for 20 years, because probably no one's talked to you about it. I know I'm involved in it, but I'm going to ask you questions about it, because we are in that kind of thing, but, uh, the other record that, that, that is, you know, that is on the, uh, precipice of, of being, uh, foisted on the world is, is, uh, Peter Stample's uh, 100 Songs record of the 20th century and uh so th that's another major thing that you're working on i'm sure you're working on a number of things right now but perhaps you'd like to uh talk about peter's record for a minute since i don't know how many people are going to get to uh get a background understanding of it well peter's peter's record we started doing this almost 20 years 19 years ago we started and mm -hmm. and you know and you were there at the start on the very first sessions at piety street and we, uh, you know, it was this big idea. Let's do one song a year for the 20th century. And so we did that. So it took all this time. And Peter, now the liner notes are just insane. They're just beyond, there's like, I don't know. It's, it's a novella, you know. And then he's got Robert <laughs> Christ, really? he's yeah. got Robert Christigal writing. He's got Jeffrey Lewis writing. He's got Elijah Wald wrote. I mean, it's like, and the funny part is, in Peter's mind, it's still the 90s, and people are going to read all this stuff. And, and I'm like, well, they're going to read it online. Oh, well, can't we get it on the thing? Well, do we put magnifying glasses with every release, you know? I mean, I mean, you know, no, you can't read that print. You know, we, and the joke was we did a record called Duke of the Beatniks, which we finished, I believe, in 99. And it took till 2005 to come out because it took that long for him to write the liner notes. 
<laughs> well, we're talking about a guy who has a Grammy for liner notes. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, but I'm just saying just that time becomes, Peter's the most, like, in-the-moment person ever, and so he'll be in the middle of something and then forget about it for five years and then jump right back into it. But so we started in on this, and we did it, and we did it, and now it's in the, it's like we've, the cover is just about done, the proofreading is done, there's still a few things to write and I'm I'm sitting here like with audacity making mp3s with metadata to send it to the, the PR people you know and then I figured uh -huh. and then Lily Lewis who's sort of the record label she told me she can do it and with DDPs and and bulk each one and it'll take her an hour and a half <laughs> instead of taking me five hours so I, I just That's let good. my job go and let her do it but um, so, you know, it's coming out November the 27th, but, you know, uh -huh. these kind of things take when, you know, it takes a long time you do, you know, why are we doing this right now? Because there's people involved that want me to go and talk about the Melody Makers or talk about this. And those people contact people like you who have podcasts and go, put this knucklehead on your podcast, you know, so... Uh, and, and most of the time, so many records <laughs> come out and nothing happens because nobody does anything and people think they can just throw it up and, oh, it's on Spotify now, and then nothing happens and then they get like 17 cents and they're pissed off. So in this case, we, you, we figure out that, you know, Peter's audience is still going to buy CD. They still have CD players. And uh -huh. I have one. I have to go look for it. And I have one in the studio that I use just to measure things. That, and it's old. It's been there. And it's a, uh, it's a Gemini. It's an 80, late 80s, early 90s Gemini uh, DJ CD player. <laughs> and yeah. A, anyway, and yeah, it's still it's still functioning. And uh, but you know, most of the time, people I'll email something, thumb drive, if it's too big, whatever, but CDs. But again, Peter's 80 years old and his audience is, his fan base is still kind of in this other world. And uh, so, you know, it'll be a five CD box set. There yeah, it is. Incredible thing. And, and it was uh, funny. I, I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I thought it'd be great to start a rumor, you know, that, that actually it took 20 years because we pulled a Donald Fagan maneuver and took two months to record every song, which is how it would work out. <laughs> yeah, we got done. <laughs> two and a half months to record every song and get it exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that would be, well, I, I'd say, like, you know, most of the time with records, I mean, I'll say, they'll say, how long is it? I say, it's 10 hours a song. <laughs> That's what it takes, basically, just to do. Okay, you're gonna work uh -huh. on it for a while. Okay, you're finally gonna track it. Okay, you're gonna do some overdubs. Okay, you're gonna mix it. Okay, you're gonna prep it for mastering. You're gonna send it around. Yeah, that's about, that's like, you know, a normal thing. Now I've seen records, I've, lots, I've worked on songs that took, you know, 100 hours. And I've worked on songs that took, right. you know, 45 minutes, so, or, or less, you know, where, when we do live to two track, boom, done, goodbye, you know, and then, uh, but Peter, you know, when you think about, 
we did 30 songs in a week last October. And um, that by the time, it was 10 hours a song by the time I got done with all of it. Let me ask a question this way about the Peter record. Where do you see Peter fitting? What is Peter's story really in the story of the way music, uh, in, let's say, music since the 60s? So people get an understanding. I don't think it's clear to people anymore what we're what, what we're talking about with Peter. I mean, that worries me because I, you know, I'm I'm a big fan and I got to work with him. But even the story of the Holy Motor Rounders, which somewhat relates to I think the, the the what we're the sort of things we're talking about with the melody makers, in as much as we're talking about somebody who is has an epic consciousness of of traditional music and all kinds of music, really. But it comes out sounding far out almost no matter what he does, even though it's genuinely uh, earnest. Oh yeah, it's a very interesting thing. It is. So, well, so uh, think about, you know, when Peter came up, and he had moved from Milwaukee, and he was in New York, and um, talk about 1959, I think. 50, right, 60, 90, 61, 62, in that whole area, pre era, pre pre the folk movement, pre Bob Dylan, the, the Kingston pre the Kingston trio was big. Which was eh, yeah, Kingston Trio, eh, you know, and the Letterman, and there were all those kind of bands, and uh, and and folk music. So Peter, out of that, he started, you know, taking what later on became like the Harry Smith thing, and I always thought Harry Smith was like this weird old dude, and you know that smelled bad. And I, I had no idea Harry Harry Smith had any great you know, cultural thing going until way after I was gone from New York. But uh, so Peter had jammed that whole, learned all that stuff. So he would take minstrel songs and take the offending words out of them and write new songs out of them. And he would take, and, and then he would take popular songs and rewrite them and put very offensive words in them. And he, he seemed to, uh, he had a lot of ideas all the time. And before he started taking speed, and, <laughs> and and I think this so, you know, there's a funny story where Peter got really incensed that they, this guy Devandra Barnhart Barnhart something like that I don't know there's some guy right who was like a Brooklyn guy or something who was a folky maybe 15 years ago popular, mm -hmm. and he was on David Byrne's label and they started using the term freak folk. And Peter was like, what the fuck? I invented this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and then, so I, I made the mistake of connecting Peter and David Byrne. And Peter Peter terrified him. He talked his ear off and wouldn't let him, you know, and, and Dave was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Dave, I wonder if Byrne was familiar with his with the, with the modal rounders and all that yeah so you know and and david Byrne wasn't trying to hurt anyone he was just trying to you know who knows he just didn't know you know he's he's also in the moment <laughs> so um yeah. so you know peter just by the the holy Motor rounders were basically over by the mid-60s then they joined up then they got together again and that's when i met them when they were had a band and I was like the flunky on this record that they made in 68. And, you know, that's when it's funny. And my connection with Peter is deep because 
when I got, you know, my brain damage and my face rearranged was after I dropped Peter off at his house and I was giving his meth dealer a ride home when a woman ran a red light and, you know, knocked me out and I had, you know, amnesia, couldn't remember who I was for a day, you know, that kind of shit. And then in those days they were like, yeah, you're fine. But I wasn't fine. And, <laughs> and so, I was never quite the same. So Peter had a huge impact on me, just uh, peripherally at least. And um, so were you, uh, was that, that was uh, just, it, was this, I see, I'm not, I'm, I'm having a, I'm not having the years clear in my head. Was this at the time where they were dealing with the Fugs and Ginsburg and all of that? Or is this after that too? 68 is after. 68, uh -huh. okay. Peter was, you know, I think the Fugs, you know, Peter wasn't, hadn't, didn't play with the Fugs past 65, I think, or six. I'm not uh -huh. really sure. I think Danny Korchmar even played with the Fugs, which people don't realize. <laughs> He's a great, a great guitar player and, and all that in L.A., but not somebody you think of as, you know, playing on Do You Like Boobs a lot, you know. Um, uh -huh. Well, I mean, you got, you get, you, you ended up with a, you know, with, a, with an association with those people who are sort of key cultural folks up until it's still going on. So, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, key cultural folks in that era. But, uh, but 68. I'm wondering, uh, did that, go ahead. 68, and then I lost track of Peter, and then I saw him again. I think it was it was either between 70 and 71 or 71 and 72. Uh -huh. I went to a New Year's Eve show at St. Mark's Church on, like, 9th and 2nd Avenue. Is that where it is? Yeah, I think. And and it was, like, ultraviolet, holy modal rounders, and Allen Ginsberg on New Year's Eve, and there was about 50 people there. Wow. But it was, like, Lou Reed and the Warhol gang and, you know, Hollywood, that whole thing, which I hadn't, you know, I didn't know anything about this shit. I was just there. And Peter didn't even, rem he didn't remember at that point. I went and say, hi, remember? I'm no, I don't remember. Get away from me, kid. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it was like, uh, no, go back to the, wherever you came from. And What uh, did Ultraviolet do? What is that? <clears throat> I can't even remember. <laughs> I, but I do remember the woman that I went home with that night. I always wondered what happened. Oh, to okay, her. good. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to a loft that was very much like the loft in The Fan Man. I don't know if you ever read that book, William Kotzwinkel. No. And he's a choir director. No. Anyway. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but, and then, you know, I, then I didn't see Peter again until 75. And then by that time, he was speeding his ass off for a long time. I don't know how long it was, but quite a while. And uh, uh -huh. and he stopped, I think, at later on. You know, we had a band that played three or four gigs, and then it just fell apart because it was too hideous, and I couldn't deal with it. And uh, uh huh, uh huh. And then uh, I don't know. I don't know how we we just you know remained friends and started doing this and that together, and uh, I. Um, when I moved to New Orleans, uh, he, they would come and visit, and then I worked on some of their rec Peter's records that were on different labels during that time when he had another band, and, and we did this and that. I'd played gigs with him, you know. We always like as a duo, it's an interesting to play with him, and uh, because you know you never really know what's going to happen, 
And I think nowadays maybe he's more like focused or something, but for a while there, I just never knew because we'd rehearse and then whatever we rehearsed didn't matter. So it was better to never rehearse. Uh-huh. uh-huh. That's or interesting. As Paul, and, and so what time did you, when did you, when did you start producing records for him? Uh, geez, what was the first one? Uh, God, I can't even remember. The Duke was Duke of the Beat. No, no, you must remember this. We did in the in the late eighties, and that was his, uh-huh. his record. And then I worked on Peter Sample and the Bottle Caps. But I was just I did I mixed a few things. That was it. I remember I mixed something all night, and it was amazing. And the next day I heard it, and I was like, "Where's the bass?" It was like we la- I, somehow I'd managed to like lose the bass so the record came out with like no bass on it it's fucking hysterical Ooh. yeah <laughs> well you can do a director you can redo it now director's cut you know like yeah i was like just wow. play the bass over the top of it and yeah i'm really gonna find that two inch <laughs> i'm gonna find that two inch somewhere and then in the 80s around like with wilner and i peter came and sang on the candy mountain soundtrack and he, we did a track with you know, Rebo and Ardo and the whole, all the musicians that were part of that. That was pretty great. And then Peter did a, some song. I mean, I made a solo record in the late 80s and Peter did some stuff on that. And then we did his, and you must remember this, his record is really the predecessor to the 100 songs because it was the first time of going back into all those old things and treating them, well, a lot of, you know, chocolate on the sushi, but not, not like deranged like the old rounder stuff had been and i'll make note Mm -hmm. that a lot of there's peter fans out there that think like this is you'll like this and i'm like the straight man that has like sort of led peter into normalcy you know (laughs) Uh (laughs) which is great you know i'm like what (laughs) how did that happen yeah but they like it when peter can't remember the words trips on stage that's ridiculous. You know, they like him to be the clown. And, you know, well, when, he, when he's okay. not the clown, uh-huh. they, they, they're they not happy. So he's got a fan base uh, of that. And, uh, yeah. You I know, did not know that. That's and Peter got into improvising about five or six years ago. And that's been really <laughs> his stuff with Shelley Hirsch. He did some stuff with Don Moy. That's amazing. He did some... He did some crazy improvising with people that were did it forever, and he just jumped right in there with him. Didn't even blink. <laughs> uh huh. So, um, as far as other stuff you're uh, you're getting up to these days, I'm, I'm, I'm in a way I'm skirting around too much of your absolute past because I've, I've got four hours of interview with you elsewhere about your entire history and stuff. And I know you've been talking about that recently. So I'm sort of more interested in what you're thinking about in your work and, and, uh, you know, music. Well, uh, I mean, going on in your right career. now, you know, I've been writing this book. So I wrote the book and I gave it to people and people read it and other writers and people who are readers and, and my son who's a writer and teaches writing. And so then I got feedback and, I started reading certain things and getting an idea. It was sort of like, oh, 
yeah, writing music is easy. Writing is hard, you know, and uh-huh. and so I I'm getting ready to go back and do another draft now with my newfound knowledge of uh, writing shorter sentences and whatnot, and uh, so I've been working on that, and then I've been I've been going through like I have in front of me this Yusef Latif book, and so I go through that and I play something new every day and get that under my fingers. And then I've been going in and playing the piano a lot. And I'm sitting there and I'm just trying to, I'm making up songs that are nothing but, but just bitonals, you know. So, uh, you know, call me Laura Nero. I don't know what you want to call it. But no, I'm just like floaty, not like uh, Maiden Voyagey, but. So and then I sing along with that and see where it goes. And then I'm still working on this Hoagy Carmichael stuff in case we ever get around to recording that. And mm-hmm. I've learned a few new things of that. And then I've been listening. I listen a lot to things. And like what? Oh, like I'll actually just put on, I'll put on my iTunes. And today it was, you know, it was like Lee Perry into Brahms, you know. So I, I mean, you, uh-huh. you know, into the Mississippi Sheiks, you know, into uh-huh. Larry Harlow. So you know, I'm like, it's all over the place. All right, what do you want? To, what, let's uh, let's pause there for a minute. I want to ask you a question about that for a minute because um, I had an interesting discussion. Uh, you know, one of the people I interviewed recently was Joe Henry, and then another person I interviewed a few months before that was uh, Allison Brown, uh, who's another record producer and banjo player, of course, up in. Uh, Nashville and uh, and I was it's funny because uh, Allison had brought up the fact that she didn't really worry about the you know she liked putting on albums now where she used to think of an album as a as a complete thing now she does she just she said people don't really listen that way so uh, so she doesn't really mind if it's one song after another that are unrelated and of course I ran this by Joe and Joe was like no it's not my position to do that I make whole albums and if somebody wants to put in the time then it's there and he said but it's not my responsibility I spent my youth going from song to song with the needle on the record player you know so there's nothing telling people that just because you make a whole record they got to go that way but I'm wondering what your what your experience is of the difference between making whole records or the concept of a whole record versus listening to things uh, you know piecemeal like that coming out of an iTunes randomizer and far as far as our listening culture goes now and how you like to put things together and how you see that well I mean I still think of the the cinematic 40 minutes you know or 38 minutes to me you know that, that's like you know, 19-minute uh, vinyl sides. I like it, but I don't really, you know, you don't get to do it that much. I mean, vinyl is like, we used to hate vinyl because it ruined everything. It was like would shrink everything up, and the <laughs> tapes in the studio were amazing. And then, oh, shit, now it's got to go on fucking record. And then somewhere along the line, vinyl became this magic bullet of warmth and audio fidelity, which... Hello, it's not, you know, but anyway, I'm not, I don't want to be the, the, uh, crabby, uh, whatever, uh, but. <laughs> the anti Neil Young. You're the anti Neil Young. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. and Leonard Skinner. So the, anyway, uh, so, but I still think about, I still think about whole pieces and sequencing and, and I loved, uh, you know, I like to melt things together and all that. Because I like to listen to it as a whole thing, but I accept the fact that people put it on random and, but, you know, say 
a lot of people, you there's also the other thing, which is you get your playlist on Spotify or Apple Music or something, and then you get, you know, you get to pick the eight songs that you like out of the 12-song album and four you like from the other album and make your playlist and then listen to that. So then, you know, then you don't have to listen to Ringo or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, I skipped the Ringo songs. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just figure, I mean, things go on, you know, like we make work out of whatever is there and and things that were like a joke become legitimate instruments. The things that were 20 years ago were like toys or, you know, yeah. low fidelity are now part and parcel of every day's work. So, yeah, it's like. <laughs> Roll with it. Roll with it. That sounds good. Uh, are you uh, on the production end? Are you uh, seeing anybody interesting that you're dealing with or that, that are coming? I realize we're in a lockdown now, so it's probably well, <laughs> I not mean, that much action. I've been wor- I worked on this I'd record with Stephen Bernstein, who was remained in New York, and and um, and that that was really fun to mix with somebody that's such. Um, and a ranger who has such a vision. And uh, it was great. I had a really good time. Uh, uh-huh. Detailing. What was that about? Pardon? What was it about? Well, it's like the, I mean, Bern- it's the Bernstein Butler Hot Nine, only with Medeski instead of uh, Henry. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. one, a couple tunes with Arturo O'Farrell. So, it was uh-huh. essentially that music, or you know, because they had a lot of it, whatever it, that wasn't on the record they made. And um, Donald Edwards on drums, who's a New Orleans cat that's been in New York forever. Um, yeah. Great, just great musicians. Everyone had a good sound. It was recorded really well, and just to detail it, it was great. And and you know, and I, I like that I. I know what a trombone sounds like, you know, and and I can go at it and get it and send it back, and they're like, "Wow, how'd you get the trombone to sound like so good?" And I'm like, "I don't know, it sounds like a trombone." So you know, there's some things you do that that you just know how to do it after all this time, and people are still a lot of musicians have still not comprehended what recording is and what happens even if they've done it hundreds of times. So that's always funny to me. But um, this record, it was great. It was great to do that. And, and then I just did that whole, uh, I, I made a piece for, a memorial piece for Hal Wilner. And that was more like me as a composer person, where I made a whole uh, overture, and I made it out of about 25 pieces of, you know, intros from a song in the 30s, intros from a song in the 40s, plus some string patches, plus me turning the guitar into an oboe, the guitar into a French horn. I mean, you probably, you know how to do that shit anyway. But anyway, so, yeah, and then it, it really sounds very like, it doesn't sound synthy and it sounds orchestral. And then I had a clarinet and bass clarinet, and then Bernstein played some alto horn and trumpet, and then I had, yeah, it was quite a, Willie Schwartz played on it, uh, 
quite an epic thing. And it's basically, it's going to be a, uh, it's a Gregory Corso record that how that it's like stuff that wasn't on the 2003 Gregory Corso record that Hal produced with Marianne Faithful. But this is the text in this piece is a conversation. Gregory is on his deathbed, essentially. He's gotten out to come and hang out. He died two weeks later. And he um, and he's with Marianne and Hal, and he wants to go gambling, and he wants to drink a little bit, and he's mixing the brandy with his morphine. It's uh, it's somewhat dark, and uh, you know, but it was like something Hal wanted to make something Hal would listen to if he was still around to listen. Sure, it's real from those times. I mean, the cultures. Culture has become soft, so that that's definitely falls in line with that, with their literary, I mean, at least Corso's literary world. It's, it's fascinating. Well, you know, and um, plus Hal, yeah. Hal turned into Saint Hal, so this is, this is not Saint <laughs> Hal. This is the Hal that we actually knew, not the, the posthumous Saint Hal. <laughs> the Saint Hal, yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Um, uh, let's see, and. Uh, what else did I want to talk about? I, I'm not sure there is anything. Do you want to talk about anything else? I don't know. I've, no, I've had enough. I, 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 talking about myself Good. with people That's once good. a week is for the last two months is I'm kind of played out on it. I like talking to Mike. Yeah, I was, Mike Watt was fun to talk to about because he, he just was irreverent. and you know, It's all been actually fun, <laughs> but... At this point, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm know. sorry about that. I, I can think of I a million things. Like, oh, I did this, reason, and I did uh, that. I and I, doing a lot of that. Oh, you know what's funny? Remember the blood? Did we talk about this before, about how Blood Ulmer, when he used, he had to use my guitar because his guitar broke, and and he had that special tuning, and when he used my guitar in regular tuning, he sounded just like he always did. There's, oh, yeah. There's an amazing, sure. one of the strangest things I ever witnessed in the studio. I know, I know something else I've been doing. <laughs> I've been sitting there What's that? and playing the playing the drums and just playing the same beat for like 25 minutes. That's oh, yeah. it. Yeah, it just as like I don't know I don't know why. It just it, it's anything to it's like I'm learning and I've been studying like uh like a, like taking an economics course, which is funny since I didn't really know anything. I mean, so I've been learning so much stuff and I've been reading reading a bunch and so that's yeah the pandemic world you know the studio i mean i'm working on stuff every day in here oh you know and i'm also after this hundred songs is done that that louisiana red hot is putting out i think i have a hundred and i have 198 songs or something that has been released and uh-huh. they're going to put them all out and they'll be like a a best of CD or vinyl or whatever. And uh, it's largely to pitch for licensing because I had uh-huh. all those songs and, and I had them out for like a couple of years. Then they were through a distributor and they were like, you know, they tell you, oh, you have... 4,000 listeners a month. You have this, you have that, you have there's a lot of stuff. And there's plays, and it got played all this time. And 
I was like, a couple of weeks ago, it's like the pandemic, there's no work. And I thought, I realized, dude, you made more money last week mixing during a pandemic than you made having millions <laughs> of people listen to your music on Spotify for two years. <laughs> so, I, so I just went and I took everything off. I was like, fuck, enough. I took it all off and I was like, and then Red Hot had talked to me about this, doing this, you know, they were going to start doing licensing. I was like, okay, I'll do that. That's that, because I don't know what else to do with all this content. You know, your content is king. King of what? The gutter, you know? And <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, for me, I'm, I'm lost in just this, this constant chewing, men, mental chewing over the fact that if the, if the, if the, if the, if the you know, if, if the pandemic should be proving to everybody that the music business is not, music is there at, regardless of the fucking music business. Content is something that you put in a container. These people purvey containers. It's ridiculous. And, you know, we're all stuck in this. And now this is completely off the table. Now, but I'm sure people will, 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 will fool themselves again and, you know, as soon as they get that vaccine in their mouth or their lip or their nose or up their ass or wherever we're going to take it, you know. They'll just go right back to the delusion, but, but, uh, but you know, for a minute here, it's it's real clear. It's very funny, man. I, I laugh about it every day. I'm like, what music business? Is music really business, funny, yeah. Funny so I I got interviewed, and the first thing the guy said to me something was about the music business, and I was like, I'm not in the music business. I don't know anything about the music. And I think, and I was like, wow, this guy, he didn't really do his homework. He didn't, he could oh, it's have, hilarious. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, uh, you could have, you know, you know, I've, I've been pretty, uh, yeah. it's my own personal rant, but I'm like, you know, okay, so we got, we got, you know, 11,000 years of music, and then we have, you know, 75, 80 years of something that they call a music business or something, you know, or if you include, you know, publishing stuff, it's not much longer than that. It's this drop in the ocean, and yet we're all supposed to be dependent on it, looking for it limiting ourselves to it limiting the art form to it you know and everybody signed up for this like you know like a kind of like automatic slavery it's really bizarre you know i don't know i'm just <laughs> i'm still holding out you know like i people they're asking oh you did this how did this happen i'm like i don't know how did any of this shit happen <laughs> i was like i said you know i'm like i'm i feel lucky you know i mean maybe i i get along with people and i help them work and they say oh you did this so you can do that you know I, I keep getting gigs to like score stuff and you know essentially it's like when do I ever do that you know I have to sit down mm. now and remember I have to sit there and count to write music down and 30 years ago I was like writing music like crazy and then then I just sort of stopped doing it because I was like uh -huh. what the fuck what do I need to write down you know and I'd write it down to remember if I wrote a piece and I go okay this is you know I was like, what? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't what am I doing this for? And uh, and then I started using Sibelius for a while, and then I stopped doing that. So now I don't have any, I don't have, you know, a, a composing uh, program. I don't have a manager. I don't have an agent. I don't have a booking agent. I don't have a website. <laughs> I don't have anything. I mean, it just, but somehow people get a hold of me, you know, and I do this shit, you know. And I can't, yeah. you know, and I'm not, yeah. it's like, and it's funny because, 
you know, it's, it, it turns out that, you know, again, the minute you try to second guess the marketplace as an artist, you're in trouble. Now, if, you, if you're like in the shipping business or you know, tons of businesses, you have to, you know, prepare for the worst, know all the alternatives, know exactly what you're working with, know who your competition is. Remember on a daily basis that there are terrible people that want to fuck you up. And it's not being paranoid. That's just how human beings are. There's terrible people yep. out there that want to fuck you up mm. for no reason other than their own ignorance, et cetera. So, you know, you prepare your, you know, but musicians, I don't know. They like think, I don't know what musicians think, you know, but I mean, you know, I wake up every day and think, yeah, there's, there's, there's some shit. But, you know, it's not going to ruin my day. But I know that, you know, like, you know, I knew this kind of pandemic could happen. You know, you yeah. prepare for it. You think, okay, what happens if this? What happens if that? Well, and then you find something to do. And uh, obviously, you know, if you don't have shit to do, people lose their minds and everyone, their relationships break up. Life, you know, goes to hell. They have no, suddenly, everyone's, their identity's tied in with what they do or their partner or what their job is, you know, and it's, it's nuts. So, yeah, it's like, and that's all tied into the world you're talking about that we have to put our compartmentalize ourselves and, eh. yeah. yeah, make a pretense. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, luckily, luckily, it's completely doesn't look like that right now for a little while. I don't know when the fantasy will be over, but you know, right now, I think everybody's looking at it differently. Um, listen, Mark, it's uh, it's real good talking to you, and uh, and uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure we got you know we got in the can here. I hope it didn't. Uh, didn't bug out your night too much, and uh, and uh, now all this. I'll send you this. We'll carry on. <laughs>